What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. I'm Austin Terry, and I brought my box of chocolate. I'm Matt Johnson, and Dan Day-Lewis would have trouble playing me in a movie. And I'm Keith Baker, and I'm really glad I don't laugh like Mozart. On today's show, in honor of the Academy Awards later this week, we'll be having a bracket-style debate to decide the best, best picture. But first, Matt, how was the Falcon and the Winter Soldier this week? Ooh, it was good this week. Austin and I have been slightly down on the show the last couple weeks, but this one brought us back up. We have the finale next week. Everything's going to end, and I hope it wraps up well. But I'm actually going to throw this one over, Austin, if you don't mind, to Keith. Keith, give us your thoughts on the newest episode. And if you didn't watch it, I want you to fake your thoughts. Yeah, I think I might be a little bit more up on this episode. Whoa, more up than us. Wow, okay, okay. I don't know if it's possible. Y'all were really up on this one. We were pretty up on it, but Keith, I gotta say, I'm excited to hear that hmm. you liked it so much. Tell me about your favorite scene. Don't do not do too many spoilers, but just give us some vague thoughts, if you don't mind. Man, that scene when Sam picks up the shield, oh. just lunges forward at Johnny Walker. I was like, that's fucking badass. That was really badass, Keith. And uh, spoilers, it did actually happen in this episode. So what? get ready for it. <laughs> well, thank you for faking your thoughts on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, <laughs> Keith. And with that, my friends, let's get into our competition today. Uh, we each submitted four of our favorite Best Picture winning films, and we've organized them among four common themes. Crime, action, oppression, and lightheartedness. Boys, I think the criteria this time around is pretty straightforward. If it won Best Picture, it's in the bracket. We have a lot of different types of genres of movies in our competition today. Did you notice any common traits while watching these movies about what it takes to win the Best Picture Award? I guess I'll just start by saying great acting, obviously. Good casts and good actors and actresses. That's an interesting point too, though, Keith, because the Best Picture does not always have the best actor winner That's in true. the film either. Sometimes it goes either way. It has to be consistently at least good in a lot of different categories. I think you see a lot of movies miss out on Best Picture because they were, on a scale-wise, they were incredible. Like, when it came to violence, or story, or acting, or directing, or writing, or comedy, drama, whatever it may be. It's like, in one aspect, they really nailed it. Whereas in the others, like, it's okay. But I think a lot of these Best Picture winners we see, maybe they shouldn't have won Best Picture that year. But they work pretty consistently good in a lot of different categories. So that's something I noticed when rewatching some of these. And also, weirdly, I did not know when going into this, even with some that I had submitted, that we have some crossover when it comes to directors and actors. Like some of the movies we're going to talk about today was was like they were directed by the same people. We had similar actors in all of them. And I didn't even know that going into them. So it's kind of this weird little uh I guess, just fun fact, if you will. I think also it kind of ties into what Keith brought up, too, because you do have to have great actors, but I don't think I don't think your lead has to give an incredible performance. I think everybody around the lead needs to be giving consistently good performances, because if you just have one actor carrying the movie, I don't think a lot of the time those are the movies that are win best picture. I think it's it's a movie that has a, has an, a great cast giving great performances throughout every level of the film. But just overall great characters. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, Keith. Yeah, how the story uses them is super important. But yeah, like Austin kind of set us up, Keith, I mean, whenever we do these bracket episodes, and by the way, I'm really excited that we're back doing a bracket because it's been a while, but usually we do have 
a lot of criteria. And this one was super interesting because it's like, well, these all won Best Picture. I guess you don't have to like it if it did or not, but it's still like, how do we rank these against each other when they objectively all did win that award? And that's the whole purpose. So interesting conversation. Do you guys have any criteria in mind right now of what you're going to be looking for for a movie to move on? Yeah, I have kind of one thing in mind. So, you know, if it's an older movie, I'll kind of, you know, try to think, does it still hold up? And if it's a newer movie, does it live up to the hype? Well, Keith, you, uh, I think you may have just stolen my thunder there a little bit because my criteria was going to be, and it wasn't going to be fair to the newer movies, but for some of the older movies on here, they're going to have to stand the test of time. For me, yeah. if it's a Best Picture winner, if it won Best Picture back in the 80s or the 70s, it needs to still be enjoyable and a good watch today, I think. I think if you're going to stamp Best Picture on a movie, it has to stand the test of time. I agree. I like that point, too. And I would go on the opposite end of what Keith also said, which is if it's a newer movie, then it can't be kind of – I don't even know how you want to put this, but it's like when I watch a movie and the credits roll – and then I read that it won Best Picture, I want to go, okay, I get that. As opposed, oh, as opposed to, oh, yeah, I mean, it was good. Does that make sense? Like, there's some of these movies that I, I, I will say up front, I really liked all of these movies on a rewatch. But um, there are some where I was like, that is kind of interesting when you look at what it was like nominated against. Like, huh, weird. And so for some of the – and I'm talking about with specifically the newer movies on the list. It's like it was good, but was it like as long-lasting as some of the other ones? I don't know. So that's something I'm going to try and consider as well. Okay. Well, it's going to be an interesting competition today. I Usually when we, when we do these brackets, I have an idea about what might win. I have no idea today. I'm so yeah. excited for this competition. So we're going to roll our transition music, and when we come on back, it'll be time for the best best picture bracket. All right, Keith, let's get into the competition today. Please inform the audience who our one-seaters are. So our one-seaters for today are The Godfather Part 2, Braveheart, Parasite, and Forrest Gump. All right, so Keith just told you the one-seaters. Everybody that wins in this first wildcard round will go on to face one of those films. And for our first matchup of the wildcard, we have No Country for Old Men versus The Departed. So No Country for Old Men, released in 2007, it was directed by the Coen brothers and stars Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, and Josh Brolin. It's set in Texas, um, and it follows a hunter who stumbles upon a drug deal gone wrong. He takes $2 million from the scene and is pursued by a serial killer working for the cartel. And it's going up against The Departed, which was released in 2006. It is directed by Martin Scorsese. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, and Jack Nicholson. And it follows the dueling plots of an undercover police officer and a police mole for the Boston mob. This is a good matchup. This is our crime bracket, guys. And I gotta say, before we start, because I know there's going to be some good thoughts here, had you guys both seen each of these films going into this one? Yes. I've seen The Departed way more than No Country for Old Men. Same I've here. also seen Same No here. Country for Old Men multiple times, though. I had seen both of these movies only once, and it had been a long time for me, so it was really fun to go back and revisit. All right, well, I'm going to start with you, Austin. As someone that had only seen each of them once, so it's a fair starting point, what do you want to bring up when it comes to this matchup? Yeah, this one's tough. Um, I think The Departed is a really fun movie. 
Uh, I think it's got great performances. Um, I, I love how they do the the story of of the dueling plots of both the undercover and then uh, the mole for the for the Boston mob. I do think it's a bit hard to follow in the first act of the film, and they don't really good job of like making it make sense. Like you're kind of just kind of stuck figuring out where they're going. Um, and, and whereas with No Country for Old Men, I just think it's thrilling from the opening shots to the time the credits roll. So that's kind of where I'm at. I kind of don't know where I'm voting yet, but that, that those are kind of my opening thoughts on these films. Yeah, yeah. I, li- I like what you said there. I'm going to jump in here as well because I think I know where I'm leaning. I'm not 100% sure, but I do think regardless, I am kind of in line with Austin. Whereas on this rewatch, The Departed is one I've seen a bunch of times, like Keith said, and I've always liked it, but I hadn't seen it in a long time. And No Country is one that I had seen maybe once before this. And on this, and I didn't really like it that much, but then on this rewatch, I liked it a lot more. There was a lot of depth to it. It was interesting. It was engaging. It was fun in weird ways, which is not a word I would It's use. really funny, too. Yeah. I mean, the Coen brothers are obviously known for a lot of that dark wit, and they have that in this movie, too. And somehow, with how dark the material is, there is still some really funny moments. Um, and let me jump in here really quick, too, Matt, because something I want to throw out on that note, too, is I think with The Departed, you can't really root for any of these characters, whereas in No Country for Old Men, it's way easier to root for Llewellyn. Ooh, you see, it's it's funny because I think I agree with your take ultimately, but I don't agree with that aspect. I don't like Llewellyn Moss. I don't think he's a very... Oh, really? I don't think he's a character you can root for. I think the only character you can root for in No Country is Ed Tom Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones. I mean, he's just this older guy in a, I mean, no pun intended, in a country that's not for old men. And he's kind of going through the motions. He's trying to retire and he's just overmatched by this violence that he is reminded at every turn. There's always been violence, Ed. Like, what are you talking about? And watching when he goes through is so interesting. And Llewellyn's such an asshole. I mean, like, I feel like... Really? I don't think so at all. He has moments. I, I really like Llewellyn because he, he tries to wring water for the guy dying in the truck. And then that's yes. how he ends up in the situation. Like, doing doing the right thing is what causes him to get on the, on the notice of Javier Bardem's character. Whereas if he had chosen not to do the right thing, he would have been totally fine. They would have never found him. He's a great character. There's no doubt about that. I think he's an amazing and perfectly well-written character and superbly acted by Josh Brolin. But Austin, that's the great thing about the character is that what you're saying is true, but he was equally an asshole for like not reporting it to the police when he got there in the first place. He just goes there and like finds a guy that's about to die and is just like, I don't got agua for you and walks away and takes the money. <laughs> like he's never phased by anything. And it's not until like 24 hours later, he's like, I got to go give him some water because uh, I'm going to regret this, but I'm a good guy. So it's like sometimes he's a good guy. Sometimes he's a bad guy. And it's like it's constantly shifting. See, but I, I think, though, he is going to call the police until he finds the money. And because when he finds the money, he opens it up and he's like, yeah. And then you kind of I think you can see that like, the, the flip switch in his head where he's like, well, I got to take the money. Like, I'm not going to leave it here. You know? <laughs> I agree with like, that. I, I... That's true. That's true. <laughs> and uh, before we bring in Keith, I do think in The Departed, I, I totally understand your point. I do find myself rooting for on each rewatch. It's kind of hard not to root for Costigan, which is the DiCaprio character, in terms of what they are going through. I know there are elements of that character where it's like, well, I can't root for that. But still, it's like they are this person that is a cop that is so deep undercover trying to do the right thing that it's like 
you can kind of root for them. But Keith, what, what do you think when it comes to like rooting for these characters? And also, I mean, fill us in on what your thoughts on these movies are. Yeah. Um, thoughts on No Country for Old Men. What a weird movie, mm-hmm. but such a good movie. I think it's it's very villain based, really. Like I think Javier Bardem really steals oh the show. God. He's the best villain in this bracket, for yeah. sure. Oh yeah, Hands he down. is. So good. You could almost say he's actually no, I would say he's a better villain than and I hate to say because I think he's good, Jack Nicholson and the party. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, he's he beats him. But that goes to my my points for the departed. Oh uh, man. I, I just love the story in the departed. It's so fun. The intertwining undercover bullshit going on within the the police force and then the the mob and and just all these different characters with all these different motivations doing their own their thing and I don't know it's fun and I in the cast in the departed is just phenomenal it's huge yeah. yeah um you get some really heavy hitters in there and they're all they're all fun characters and I just find the departed to be probably more rewatchable than no country for old men I don't find myself craving to watch No Country for Old Men all the time, even though, you know, probably maybe once a year I'll give it a watch, or maybe every couple of years, but The Departed I watch probably at least once or twice a year. So I think I'm going to have to vote for Departed. Oh, I did, I did not expect you would actually throw a vote out in that conversation. Well, that's perfect, Keith, yeah. because I was just going to kind of bring up, well, it's time to decide. So you, you kind of made that for us. Yeah, Keith, so I, th- I think the main thing you brought up there is the movie that you had more fun with being The Departed. For me, I remember... The Departed being like mind blowing the first time I watched it, especially with the way the movie ends. And this time around, I was a little bored by the time we got to the third act. I didn't have as much fun as I remembered having it the first time I saw. Whereas No Country for Old Men, like I've kind of teased, I was entertained and and really kind of on the edge of my seat for the entirety of the film. And I think just based on the two different experiences, I'm going to vote for No Country for Old Men. Yeah, I'm keeping my vote with The Departed, but. No Control of Men is a great movie. And this this one can almost be a tie for me, but I have to choose one. Yeah. No Control of Men definitely keeps you on the edge of your seat way more than Departed does. And the acting in, in No Country is, is awesome as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to take away from those characters either. Yeah, it, it would be a tie for me, but I think I have to, if I have to choose, I'll go on which one I would watch more, and that would be The Departed. And that is a good call because, I mean, when it comes to rewatchability, that's something we talk about a lot in this podcast in these brackets, but it's not something that immediately jumps to mind with like best picture winners like the prestige films if that makes sense and it is a good call um i am gonna side with austin though regardless and it's only because of my experience on this specific rewatch i i really have great experiences with both of these movies no country didn't love the first time and i loved it on the rewatch when it comes to the departed on the rewatch i still liked it ultimately though while a lot of these movies are long like over two hours. This one, I don't think it justified its running time. There was a lot of scenes that I felt they put in just because, well, let's have Jack Nicholson do something really cool or crazy. I totally agree with that. Jack Nicholson is one of the greatest actors of all time, bar none, and he is incredible in this film. But there are some scenes where he's just chewing the scenery and I don't really know why. There's too much of him yeah. in this one, I think. Yeah. I think it would be a better villain if we saw less of him. And also... um. I will say the romance triangle in The Departed is genuinely bad. This element of Matt Damon, who is this fascinating character who isn't the bad guy. He was a poor kid picked up on the street by this um, Whitey Bulger-based mobster. And it's like, you kind of get it, and it's fucked up. And then he's now a cop, and it's like, ah, God, I can't root for him, but it's still sad. And he meets this girl. It's like, oh, wow, I hope it works out. 
And then she's also the psychiatrist for the undercover DiCaprio. And then they start an affair. It's like, this is stupid and underdeveloped. And I will say also, I laughed at the end of the movie when DiCaprio, Anthony Anderson, and James Badgedale die. For some reason, it was the most mind-blowing thing I had ever seen when it first happened. But on a rewatch, it was so funny watching DiCaprio yeah. just get shot out of nowhere, Anthony Anderson get shot out of nowhere, and then Matt Damon just, like, <laughs> watching him try and, like, sneak a gun and then shoot the other guy. I was like, this is so goofy. Well, and see, that's kind of what I meant when I said it didn't hold up the second time around, because when you get to the final 15 minutes of this film, there's a lot of, like, interesting plot stuff left to wrap up, yeah. and they wrap it up in two seconds, yeah. and it's too quick, and, and not. Mm. I don't think it's very satisfying either. It isn't satisfying. It's actually kind of sad ending. Yeah. <laughs> but but we do get some satisfaction at the end with Mark Wahlberg's character so killing good. the rat. Mark Wahlberg, I think, got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this, for this movie, and even though the character makes literally no sense, he's so engaging, charismatic, and fun in the movie. And that final scene, I remember the first time I watched it, I did not expect that. I thought, like, Mark Wahlberg's character, we wouldn't see him again, and watching him kind of get the final justice in a way is the perfect ending. So at least we got that. So we're going to move on now. No Country for Old Men will go on to face The Godfather Part 2 in our next round. And let's go ahead and move on with the wild card now. We have Argo versus Gladiator. Argo was released in 2012. It's directed by Ben Affleck, and it stars Ben Affleck, John Goodman, and Brian Cranston. It follows the story of a CIA agent attempting to extract six Americans during the Iranian hostage crisis in 1979. And then we have Gladiator. It was released in 2000 and directed by Ridley Scott. It stars Russell Crowe, Joaquin Phoenix, and Connie Nelson. And it's the story of a Roman general named Maximus who loses everything when a new emperor murders his family and sends him into slavery. I think I know where I stand. I think this one will be quick. Okay. All right. Well, then actually, you know, I'm going to start then because I think maybe I'm crazy, but I think I might have a hot take here. Obviously, based on the years these were released, I've seen Gladiator way more. It was one of like the first just like a weird fact it was one of the first r-rated movies i had seen i thought it was so badass and interesting it introduced me to russell crowe who i love and just such a fun movie while also it, ha- it definitely has some depth and like great characters and some just all around fantastic performances with russell crowe connor nielsen and joaquin phoenix um i didn't like argo when i first saw it i saw it once before this and it was in theaters i was like that was good and then it won best picture and i was like Really? I mean, it beat all of these other great movies. That seems shocking to me. Um, and on this rewatch, I gotta say, against all odds, I loved Argo. And Gladiator, for me, <laughs> was just a really good action movie. So if I'm voting for what I think is better all around, I'm, I think I'm leaning towards Argo. I'm not going to vote yet. I want to know what you guys think, but I think I am leaning Argo. Yeah, I'll make mine short and sweet. I will be voting for Argo. Um, I think Argo is just such a fun and well-made movie. I think it's uh, it's long, like it's it has a long running time, but it moves quick, which I think they it's hard to nail in a film. Like with a long running time, it still goes by really fast. Um, I think it's chock full of great performances. I think they did a great job of taking this historical event and tying like a fun spy story to it. And then with Gladiator. Same with you, Matt. I think it was one of the first R-rated movies I ever saw at the time. I loved it. I thought the action was badass. On this rewatch, for a movie called Gladiator, 
there's not enough gladiator stuff in the film, I don't think. And I, I think all the politics behind the scenes is, is pretty uninteresting. Um, the action, for the most part, still holds up, but just the movie as a whole, I think, has not aged very well. I'll agree with you there on Gladiator. I was, I hadn't seen it in a long time. It's probably been like seven, eight years since I'd seen it. And I was expecting to like, go into it like, oh yeah, it's, you know, we're going to get some, I don't know if you guys watch Spartacus. We're going to get more like Spartacus kind of like yeah. fights in it. Like, no, not really. I mean, you get some. And then, and the ones you do get are pretty good, but yeah. yeah, not like you said, Austin, not as much as you would think. There's a lot of monologues in this movie too, like a lot of monologues. And the story, yeah, wasn't that interesting to me and got a little slow uh, in moments and I just kind of got tired of the characters, even though they were good performances, but yeah. the characters themselves, I just kind of got tired of. I think I agree with you guys. I just think the action for me at least still held up. A lot of the CG didn't and- it's tough because I'm not trying to rank it against the movie we're going to talk about later in this bracket. Well, I guess we'll spoil it. But I mean, Braveheart is the one seater in this in this side of the bracket. And that movie, to me, has incredibly interesting politics, phenomenal action. The practical elements still hold up. And when you compare it to something like this, it's like when you combine it with all the CG and the politics that don't make sense in the story, it just isn't super compelling in the long run besides the action scenes and Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix as performance-wise. So, unfortunately, yeah, that's think I'm why I'm leaning towards Argo as well. So, it sounds like Argo is going to move on. I, I know we didn't talk about it a whole lot, but we'll talk about it more uh, when it faces Braveheart in round two. And let's keep moving now in the wild card. Uh, we have 12 Years a Slave versus Spotlight. Spotlight. 12 Years a Slave released in 2013. It is directed by Steve McQueen. It stars Chiwetel Ejiofor, Michael Fassbender, and Lupiti Nyong'o. Um, it follows the true story of Solomon Northup, a free black man living in New York who is abducted and sold into slavery in southern Louisiana. And then we have Spotlight, which was released in 2015. It's directed by Tom McCarthy. It stars Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, and Rachel McAdams. And it's a look into the Boston Globe's reporting on the Catholic Church's knowledge and concealment of child molestation by Catholic priests. So obviously both of these films have very uh, hard subject matter to talk about. Um, both of these are very hard to watch and uh, just really, really real when you watch them. So who wants to kind of start us off today? I'll start us off here. Um, yeah, I think both these movies still very much hold up. Let me talk about Spotlight. I like Spotlight a lot more the first time I watched it. I didn't really enjoy it as much the second time. I don't know why. I don't know if I was bored or if I just kind of knew what was going to happen already. Maybe that's why. It's something about the whole investigative thing just didn't draw me in this time. But not to say the performances weren't good and the story itself is really interesting and awesome. As far as 12 Years a Slave, I love this movie, watching it again. Actually, I think I liked it even more watching it this time. Uh, and I think the story is just phenomenal and the acting by Chiwetel and Michael Fassbender and all the other guys in there, uh, Lupita, it's insane. I, I think that movie, like I was, you know, on the verge of tears in some moments, man. Like it's it's intense and such a great story. Super uncomfortable to watch, but um, it really got me. I guess I'll kind of jump in here. I I think 12 Years a Slave is full of, of better performances than Spotlight is, um, but I think Spotlight does this weird thing of, of even though you go into the film knowing that you, you know how it's going to turn out, it still builds this anxiety of like, they still may not get away with it. Like you still have that feeling while you're watching it. And it's like, are they going to pull this off? Like, is the church going to find a way to conceal this again? And, and then when they do at the end, like release it. And then there's all these calls. Like it, it, it in a weird way feels really satisfying. That's kind of the, the main thing I can throw in Spotlight's Corner, just as a positive thing. 
But I, I do agree with you said there, Keith. I do think the the performances in Twelve Years a Slave are are better. I'm gonna throw in something that might be even more controversial or just a weird point to bring up because I don't think I've ever worded a point this way before. But I think Spotlight is a better constructed movie. I think Twelve Years a Slave is a better movie overall, if that makes sense. I think the way Austin mentioned the way Spotlight builds is pretty incredible in terms of it being a real story, but also presenting each of these reveals, if you want to say it that way, when it comes to um, Cardinal Law, when it comes to the Archdiocese finding out, when it comes to finding out that they have information that can prove that Law knew about this, when it comes to all these elements and how the story starts out, it's like, well, we're just going to do a story on this one priest that did this. And it's like, oh, well, actually, uh, they're telling us there's more. And then they find out it's actually about X percentage of priests have this backstory. It's like, holy shit, that's crazy. And then everybody like Mark Ruffalo in particular, like, we have to tell this story because people are going to get hurt. And Michael Keaton's like, we can't. We can't do it until we have the full story or else nothing will get changed. And it's fucked up, but at the same time, you get it. Um, the way they structure all that and present it, I would say, is pretty spectacular. The movie itself is not. I think the performances are great. And like I said, the way they structure it is fantastic. I just think while you're watching it, it's engaging, but relatively hollow. And I don't know why this was one of those movies that won Best Picture that I was kind of like, it was good. But it is kind of surprising, whereas 12 Years a Slave overall, I don't think has that element of structure, because when you're watching it, it is kind of like, especially when you get to the second act, it's like, okay, we're just seeing scenes now that build up how Edwin Epps, the Michael Fassbender character, is this absolute just evil, like he's just this evil person to his core and watching what Solomon goes through. So there is portions of the movie that are like, I, I understand this is emotional, but do we need to see some of these for the sake of the movie as a whole? Um, but overall, I do think it's better because it feels more impactful, emotional performances are better, like you guys said, whereas Spotlight, like I said, it, it is structured so great, but I just think there is something missing, like Keith said. I just think 12 Years a Slave just let, left me more impactful, and I would, I think... And out of the two, I don't know which one's rewatchable, but... Definitely Spotlight, I think, almost objectively. I think this is the rare case, though, where not being rewatchable isn't like yeah. a, a thing against Toby as a Slave, just because the subject matter is so real and, and, and so hard to watch that it's not like, if you wanted to rewatch this once a week, like, you're a crazy person. It's not something that you can sit through and, and yeah. enjoy. It's, uh, it's something that I was thinking while we're watching it, like, this should be like mandatory viewing for high school students in America. Absolutely. I think it is. I know there was talk to make it. I don't know if it actually is, though. It's that type of movie that it's so informative and impactful that like everyone needs to see it. I mean, I, cry I, I cried watching it. Dude, yeah. And we had seen it before. We went. We all went out of our way to see this movie in a small theater in Houston uh, when it came out. I hadn't seen it since. And um, like I said, while I don't think elements of the second act in particular are structured super well when it comes to the entire movie, um, where it starts and where it ends, and just the premise of this free man um, that unfortunately, through circumstances, becomes a slave for 12 years just because of his skin color, never is given an opportunity to prove, by the way, that he is a free man. And watching how that plays out is horrifying 
watching where it ends up and how the movie ends is I was crying. I mean, watching him see kind of this nobody in his life, if that makes sense. It's just a shopkeeper that he's kind of friendly with that he is able to get a letter to and that person comes and watching them embrace and watching him prove that he is a free man and getting to go home and watching him apologize to his family for his, quote, absence is what he says, apologizing for his absence. And then the epilogue title cards where they basically say that he didn't win any of those court cases and the circumstance, location, and cause of his death is unknown. And it's just one of those things after watching the movie and knowing fucking just history in general, it's like, well, you're you're kind of making me wonder how he died because I don't know. And I'm scared that it was a less than pleasant way because it's just, I have no idea. I think the movie's very effective. The part that really got me in that movie is when he had to say goodbye to Lupita's character. Yes, and it doesn't end well for anybody else except him, Keith. That's such a good point. He knew he had to get back to his family and that he deserved to get back to his family, but at the same time, he had to leave all of his companions there. The second his carriage leaves the property, they're going right back to work. Like, nothing's going to change for the people left there. It's such a hard movie to get through, but it's so important to watch it, too. Yeah. Yeah. 12 Years a Slave gets my vote. Same here. So, 12 Years a Slave will move on to face uh, Parasite in round two. And for our final matchup of the wild card round, we have Amadeus versus One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, Amadeus was released in 1984. It's directed by Milos Forman and stars F. Murray Abraham and Tom Holsey. It follows the story of the life of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, as told by his greatest rival, Antonio Salieri. And then we have One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is also directed by Milos Forman. Which I did not remember, by the way. <laughs> and stars Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher. It follows the story of a criminal trying to avoid prison labor. He pleads insanity and is admitted to a mental hospital. He rallies other patients and rebels against an impressive nurse. So, uh, like I said, first of all, Milos Forman, great director, Man on the Moon as well. I mean, go check out this IMDb for this director. I mean, he's made so many fucking amazing movies, uh, two that won Best Picture at least. I want to start this out because I kind of want to throw it to you guys. I submitted both of these movies. Um, one of them I think will be a more interesting conversation because I submitted, to be honest, I mean, I don't think this is shocking because this is how we do the brackets. I submitted one of these without rewatching it. So I'm interested to kind of give my follow-up thoughts as well. But I also want to throw it to you guys because I suspect, I could be wrong, but because these are two of the older movies on our bracket, maybe you guys hadn't seen these before. Or if you had, maybe you hadn't seen them in a while. So I'd love to have you guys start, especially if it's your first time watching. I'll start us off if you don't mind, Keith. No, yeah, go. So One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a movie I've always heard of. People consider it like... It's always on people's list of some of the best movies ever made. I had never seen it until you submitted this movie. Amadeus, I had never even heard of. So that was also my first time viewing. Um, so I, as you guys know, I, I famously am not an old movies guy. So I, these are definitely are two movies I never would have watched if we hadn't decided to do this bracket and they were on the list. I'll go with Amadeus first. Um, so I go on to Amazon Prime oh, no. to rent this movie. And I see 1984. Oh, no. Oh, oh no, no, Austin, you're not going to enjoy this. <laughs> Slapping yourself. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then I see that the only version of this film you can find is the three hours and 20 minutes director's that is cut. That true. Oh, no, Austin. That is true. Oh, no. 
<laughs> and I loved every minute of this it's film. Incredible. It was such a fun watch. It's so well made. The way you feel like you're at these parties listening to these legendary composers, everything about it was so much fun. I, I had a great time. Um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The protagonist is a rapist. You can't root for him. My vote is for Amadeus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that was the thing. I saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest once. Uh, when I was, I think, 18, and I was like, wow, everybody was right. This is one of the best movies of all time. And watching it this time, um, yeah, that opening, it's like, if you're going to make him a statutory rapist, can he at least regret his actions? And he weirdly is like, it was the right call. I'm Jack Nicholson. It's like, that's weird. Also, nobody in the hospital is doing anything wrong. So, like, he's just in the hospital being an ass. Like, they don't have any scenes of saying, like, they're abusing the the patients or anything like that. Like, they're literally just trying to do their jobs, and he's fucking it up for the staff. Eh, I disagree when it comes to Nurse Ratchet for sure, when it comes to, like, trying to embarrass these patients and, like, the passive-aggressive control over this community. But I really only liked the second half of the movie. I will say... It is tough to kind of bury the thoughts on the Jack Nicholson character, despite how great his performance is. But in the second half, I do think it gets better. But yeah, Keith, what about you? Because I know we all talk on this podcast a lot like, you know, what are we we talk about movies just in general. And I know like there's few movies that a lot of us haven't seen that we talk about. So had you seen both these movies before? I had not seen Amadeus before. I had seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest um, once before. That one time I did see it. I actually wasn't really blown away by it. I think it's overhyped, honestly, after this viewing. Yeah, I, and I'm a big Jack Nicholson fan. Oh, yeah. And the story itself is, is interesting and fun at times and all that, but um, Amadeus was, wow, it was really cool. I liked it. I thought it was really it's fun. It's so good. I was just, yeah, just blown away. And I just going, like, Keith. yeah, I like the story. Uh, I like the characters of... We get Larry Kroger from yes, um, yes, Keith. Animal I was House hoping you'd bring that playing up. Wolfgang Mozart. You guys know me. I um, I think I'm a bit more open to long running times than maybe you guys are. But at the same time, if you're gonna have a long running time, if it doesn't justify that, then it's gonna be like one of my most miserable watching experiences. I can't stand movies that are like three hours plus that could easily be an hour and a half, if that makes sense. And Amadeus, could you cut stuff out? Probably. But but why would you? But why would, oh, Austin, such a great way to put that. Why It's all entertaining. You? You're literally watching opera. Yeah. Like, in the movie, you are watching an opera performance. They're performing it live. I looked it up. They did all this live. And it's, it's incredible. It's so cool. It's so good. They just did a perfect blend of telling a good story with good drama and then blending it with comedy and then also blending it with the composing and the music music aspect of it all and the politics behind it and everything too. Yeah. It was just cool. I just it was a really it's overall a cool movie. I also thought it was cool that our main character is I guess kind of a villain based on the way they present him, but then by the end it is a little bit, I guess, he thinks of himself as a villain. In reality it's like I guess he died of exhaustion. It's not like you actually killed him, so there is this interesting element. I just really love the element of historical fiction here. For people that don't know, Antonio Salieri did not kill or hate Mozart, by the way, but 
the way they presented it in this movie and played it out, making them rivals, but it's a one-sided rivalry, and then where that goes with him trying to concoct this plan to kill him and then steal his greatest piece and then play at his funeral and then like, climb it as his own, and then none of that happens. And then watching him, at least to the point, going, Mozart, you are the greatest composer I have ever known. And it's this weird redemption st- <laughs> redemption story in this fucked up way even though he still wants to kill him and hates him and i just think i i love historical fiction and the way this one is presented is just phenomenal when it comes to cuckoo's nest i know i, I think based on our conversation i know we're going to vote here like i said at the beginning i do i do think once they do the whole um institution escape scene from that moment on i think the movie gets exponentially better because the whole Nurse Ratchet reveal is pretty cool. I do like how it is this more passive-aggressive, a, a character trying to embarrass her people. But I don't think she's trying to embarrass them. <sighs> I think she thinks that this is what they need for their treatment. Like, I, I don't think she has any evil intentions. I think she is genuinely sold on trying to help these people. I think she thinks that's what she's trying to do. But when um, the Billy Bibbit stuff happens at the end and she's trying to, what would your mother think? It's like, that's that can't be the way to go about this. You know what I mean? But I don't think she wants the way he gets over his stutter. I don't think she wants that to be why he gets over no, his stutter. sure. I think she sure. thinks you need to do it a different way. Probably, yeah. What about you, Keith? What do you think? I think she means well, but I don't think she realizes that her methods are semi-abusive. Yeah, it's a fantastic premise. It's just as time goes on, like we've all talked about, I think looking back on it, there are holes in there when it comes to characters and motivations and stuff like that. But I do think the general plot and the beats are really interesting and make sense. Okay, well, we do got to move on. So Amadeus will go on to face Forrest Gump in round two. We now have The Godfather Part 2 versus No Country for Old Men. So The Godfather Part 2 was released in 1974. It is directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and it stars Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, and Robert De Niro. And it follows the story of the Corleone family. Newly appointed Godfather Michael Corleone tightens his grip on his family's crime syndicate while giving us the backstory of how a young Vito Corleone came to power in the first place. I gotta ask right off the top here. I don't know about you, Keith, but I know Austin, for this review, had to watch both The Godfather and Part 2 to prepare here. So, Austin, if you don't mind, I'd love to start with you to see. Because, I mean, we've talked a lot already about, like, I've heard so much about this movie in the past and I've never seen it. Uh, I mean, can you beat The Godfather or its sequel in terms of pedigree and hype and stuff like that? I'm not sure. So I want to know your thoughts. Yeah, so another kind of similar situation. I had heard, always heard great things about the Godfather franchise. Uh, never just had time to watch them. And then Matt submits the Godfather Part Two for our bracket, and I say, "Hey, do I need to watch Part One?" And you go, "Yeah, you're gonna need to watch Part One." <laughs> I go to watch it, and I see three hours, and I'm like, "Oh boy, <laughs> here we go." That's my bad. And that's just Part One. And then I go to watch part two. And you know what I see for part two, Matthew? <laughs> I see three hours and 20 oh, no. minutes. I'm like, oh, great. It's longer <laughs> now. I got to say, though, I did have uh, a fantastic time watching this yes. franchise. Uh, 
unlike One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, these movies do definitely live up to their hype. Um, I think you could almost look at them as, as a complete work, like one and two. I think you could view it as one movie. Uh, it going up against No Country for Old Men, though, Ooh. is hard for me. So I mean, did you guys to try and sell me on which way I should vote? I don't know, Matthew. I mean, are you leaning any way right now? Yes, I think I am, but it's still tough. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I guess just to set it up and then Keith, I want you to jump in here. I think the Godfather franchise, because we, I mean, we have to talk about it, is incredible. The reason I chose part two, though, is because I just really think it's unparalleled and shocking based on finishing the first one, how the second one plays out. Because the whole Michael Corleone aspect of him being the son that was never supposed to get involved, and then he does, and part two is like, okay, we're done with that conflict, fuck that. He is in charge, and what's going to happen? And the way that plays out is so brutal, sad, fucked up, scary, at times you root for him, which is like, why? But at the same time, you're like, well, of course I am, who else am I going to root for? And then the way... They cut back at the perfect times to show how the Corleone family is even relevant in the first place. And who's playing Vito? Robert De Niro. You know what I'm (laughs) saying? I mean, it's just perfect. I think No Country for Old Men is also amazing. There's no doubt about that. I just think Godfather Part 2 is maybe a little bit more amazing, if that makes sense. But Keith, I want to know, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? I know you're kind of struggling here. So just to be clear, Matt, I'm going to assume your vote is for The Godfather Part 2. I'm still thinking about it. I'm not submitting yet 100% because I, I need Keith, somebody that's still kind of on the edge. Maybe maybe his thoughts will uh, put me one way over the other. This is a tough one, for sure. Something you said, Austin, did kind of resonate with me. You said Godfather Part 1 and Part 2 kind of felt like one movie for you. And yeah, if you do watch these movies back to back, it does feel like one long six-hour movie because just, they just both flow really well into each other, I think. But that's not to say that Godfather Part Two doesn't stand enough on its own either. Um, like you said, Matthew, the 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 back and forth timelines from the 1920s, Corleone's coming up, a younger Vito. I thought that storyline was so cool um, with Robert De Niro playing young Vito. You know what it really feels like is as a uh, like how season one of a show like hits it big and then they get a larger budget. And so then they really get to tell the story they wanted to tell in season two. Like that's kind of how it feels in the Godfather part two. It's like, all right, we knocked it out of the park with part one, but here's what we want to do in part two. And now we have like the budget and the, and the fanfare to do it. I also like that. It wasn't just uh well, how did Vito come to power? But it also ties in with Michael's struggle when it comes to the darker aspects in the present because Vito, it's not only about him getting to power because we see more of the story after that. He's taking a pretty brutal revenge against people that screwed over his family and watching that tie into where Michael ends up, which is basically alone at the end of this movie, is really sad. But at the same time, you get it and it is what it is. But yeah, what were you going to say, Keith? I think just the overall story in The Godfather Part 2 uh, or Godfather Part 1 leading into Part 2 is just so fun to watch. And it's I was interested the entire time in, in all of it. Because I had never seen these before either. Uh, oh. This is my first time watching both. I didn't both. know that one. Wow, yeah. Okay. This is my first time watching both of them. And I think they they definitely live up to the hype, for sure. And I would say something against No Country for Old Men that this one brings. It just brings more to the table, I think. It brings a good story. brings awesome acting. And I don't, I don't know. I just felt more satisfied after watching Godfather Part 2. And there's and there's and there's that brings suspense too. 
So No Country for Old Men, while it is good, it's more of just a crazy thriller. While this one, I think, is more of like a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to movies. I do think New Country for Old Men, though, is a better at building suspense and tension, though, than The Godfather Part Two is. Yeah. Like, I think, I think in The Godfather franchise, the Corleone family feels so untouchable and powerful that you never really feel like their empire is in danger, whereas No Country for Old Men... Anton Chigurh is, is such an incredible villain that for the whole movie, he feels like this unstoppable force. And he's coming off of just this hunter that stumbled upon money, like a guy who's not really prepared to deal with, with the type of force that Chigurh is. I think in terms of just having a great villain, Javier Bardem just knocks out of the park. Oh, yeah. And they have some great planes of action too. The, the hotel scene, when they have their first shootout and Llewellyn has to drop to the yeah. ground from the hotel. He's getting chased down the street by Chigurh, and you see in the rearview mirror of his truck that just the flashes of a silent shotgun. Like, that has your heart yeah. pounding, and it's so intense and, and so well shot. I do think No Country for Old Men does have a better villain, I guess is what I'm getting at, than The Godfather does. I agree. I also think I appreciate the balls of um, No Country for Old Men, if that makes sense. They kill Llewellyn Moss off screen, and it still is somehow fascinating, sad, and engaging. And surprising. My God, yeah, surprising and just shocking. You don't expect it at all. You think he's still going to be alive. It's it's uh, it's pretty perfect when it comes to editing, I feel like. I just think um, it, it's tough. It's so good. But I, I really like Keith's point. I just think Godfather Part Two brings more to the table somehow, even though I love No Country. The Godfather Part Two and Part One both were incredible watches. And, and like I said, they did live up to the hype. I think they are so well made through and through. All the performances are fantastic. Nothing in them really surprised me, I guess you could say. I think as far as like mob movies go, I'm sure this movie probably established the formula. Yeah. But you kind of know how, how a mafia movie is going to go. Sure. And so maybe it's just the fact that I watched this in 2021 instead of the 70s, but I was not really surprised in The Godfather, whereas No Country's third act is just shocking and uh, and really does have some heart-pounding moments. So while I did love The Godfather Part Two, I think I'll vote for No Country. Okay. What about you, Keith? What are you thinking? I'm going to have to stick with my, my points I made earlier and vote for Godfather Part Two. All right. Oh, this is tough, guys. This is tough. No Country for Old Men is just pretty perfect. There's only one thing about it I don't like, and I'm curious what your guys' take on this is, and it's that the dialogue and the writing in general, I think, is kind of awe-inspiring, genuinely, at times. But there are moments where I'm like, okay, did this have to be, like, a weird metaphor? Like, whenever, like, Ed Tom Bell goes to visit his uncle at the end, it's like, hey, why don't you see me? And he's like, oh, I thought you were gone. He's like, what does gone mean? He's like, well, let me tell you. And it's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> like just nobody talks that way <laughs> so they are they are adapting a book i agree so maybe agreed. they did have to stay true to the source sure material. sure but there's just there are weird moments where it's like okay i don't need i don't need this much depth if that makes sense but it is an incredible film i love that anton sugar gets away at the end he's just the true embodiment of the balance between fate and chaos and of course, why not? They embody that with a coin flip, which I just find fascinating. Does he kill her at the end? Probably, but who's to say? It's fantastic. I think I'm with Keith, though. I just think The Godfather Part Two is a better story. It's a better movie. I agree with Austin that it's less surprising in a weird way, if that makes sense. But at the same time, 
John Cazale, who plays Fredo Corleone, who knocked it out of the park, watching that relationship in the first movie, where it goes in the second, and just watching Michael confront him for betraying him. And at the end of the movie, we get so much. They wrap up the villain plot. Michael orchestrates Fredo's death. We also get a flashback. Jimmy Kahn's back, baby, as uh, (laughs) Sonny Corleone. And they do that flashback scene before Michael goes to war. He's the only one that doesn't want to see his father. He's alone at the table. Cuts to him alone again in present day after his brother is dead, knowing what he's done. Do we really need that much depth, though? I think no country there's too much. I just think um, I want to vote no country, but I need to vote Godfather. I just, that's what I got to do. It's a, I think it's a better movie. All right. So the Godfather part two, we'll move on to the semifinals. And for our next matchup in round two, we have Braveheart versus Argo. Ooh. So Braveheart was released in 1995. It's directed by Mel Gibson and stars Mel Gibson, Sophie Marceau, and Patrick McGowan. Uh, it's the story of William Wallace, a Scottish warrior who leads his countrymen in the rebellion against the English crown. I'm voting Braveheart. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's ever been a more badass movie than Braveheart that still gives the depth, interesting politics that episode one tried to give us, Gladiator tried to give us. I'm fascinated by it. I'm engrossed by it. And I never question the violence in it because every single element of it, I am like, yeah, fucking do that because they deserve it the way they presented the movie. Is it historically accurate? Fuck no. I don't care. The way they presented it, I just, I love it. I loved Argo too. I did, like I said, on the rewatch, but Braveheart just fucking kills. Does it make sense that he has an affair out of nowhere and then she's pregnant and then she's going to threaten the king with like, he'll actually be the person on the throne? No, (laughs) it doesn't. But 99% of the movie is just knocks it out of the park. I'll jump in and second that. I'm voting Braveheart, too. I love Argo. The story it tells is so fascinating, and the acting is great. But Braveheart's just, like you said, Matthew, it's like the movie's movie. Like, if you're at a cousin's house and people are like, let's put on a movie. What do, what, what, what do you want to put on? And someone's like, let's put on Braveheart. You're like, fuck yeah. Let's watch some Braveheart. It's just that, it's that go-to action movie. Yeah, it's fun. I love Braveheart. That's all I have to say about it. I'm voting for it. Yeah, I, I, mean, I guess it doesn't matter at this point because Braveheart is going to move on. I will vote Argo. Uh, I just Argo's one of my favorite films. I, I think it's so fun. I'm a sucker for CIA stuff, and the idea of the CIA producing a movie is such an interesting concept. So, yeah, Braveheart, I'm just not really a big Mel Gibson guy. No, me, me neither, to be clear. To be <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I know you guys are not big Mel, <laughs> Mel Gibson as a person, guys. But I mean, just his movies, I, I don't know. I, I've never been a huge fan of his. Um, it's weird for me that he's like directed this movie and then gave him all these like just solo shots of himself, like flexing in the sunlight. It's like, okay, you're really into yourself, Mel Gibson. Fair. <laughs> so, Fair point. I don't know. Point. However, though, uh, I did mention Standing the Test of Time at the beginning of this of this episode, and I was honestly really surprised at how well Braveheart does hold up. Uh, the practical effects make a huge yeah. difference. The action still looks incredible. I don't have an issue with Braveheart moving on, um, but yeah, my, my vote will be for Argo. Okay. Well, I liked Argo. I know it's kind of a lame excuse when it comes to brackets, but genuinely, my the reason I'm saying Braveheart is just because I think it's a better movie. I know we should probably try and like dissect why, but 
that's all I can say. I just, I like it more, enjoy yeah. it more. It's not perfect, but, you know, it's Braveheart. So Braveheart will move on to the semifinals, where it will face The Godfather Part 2. And for our next matchup in round two, we have Parasite versus 12 Years a Slave. Uh, Parasite was released in 2019. It is directed by Bong Joon-ho. It stars Kong Ho-sung, Sun Kian Lee, Yui Jung-cho, and Whiskey Choi. It follows the story of the poor Kim family who has begun working for the wealthy Park family in Korea. A bizarre encounter raises the stakes for all involved. So Keith, I'm going to start with you here. I know this was your first time watching Parasite. What did you think? Oh, man. I really liked it. Going into it, I was really thinking it was... I didn't I didn't read anything about it, watch any trailers for it. Uh, just went into it blind. And so by the title, Parasite, I was like, what is this going to be about? Like a disease? Is it going to be about, I mean, okay, Parasite, some Parasite takes over some somebody's body and they have to try to get rid of it. I don't know. What, what is this going to be about? And, uh, and then I start getting into it and, you know, it's like, oh, this this movie actually is actually really funny. Yep. Totally with you. So it's going to be kind of like a, a Korean comedy. And I was down for it. Like, I was having a good time. They established their scheme to move into the Park family house. And I thought it was just going to be more fun stuff to come along. But what happened, Keith? And? <laughs> Not fun stuff happened after that. It took a total twist. Yes, it does, Keith. Yes, it does. Tell me more, Keith. Yeah, so it, it did take a twist. and But it was a good twist. Really dark, really fast. I was, wasn't expecting it, but I liked it, though. I was like, wow, this is a really interesting movie. And I liked that it was in Korean, too. Didn't bother me to read the subtitles and all that kind of stuff. Worth noting, too, that this is the first uh, Korean-directed, Korean-led cast to ever win uh, the Academy Award for Best Picture. So that that was kind of a huge moment, too, um, at the Academy Awards last year. Um, I'll, I'll jump in here, too, yeah, Keith, because I, I did submit Parasite. Um, Parasite, I think, is one of a kind. I don't think there's another movie quite like Parasite. The way it can transcend genres, like you said, Keith, just... It starts off as a comedy, and then it kind of feels like a heist movie, and then it turns into like a thriller horror movie. Just it's so creepy too, but it's not trying to be creepy. But just like like when the when the old man is walking up the stairs, and they have the flashback to the kid's uh, encounter in first grade, and you see his like wide eyes, and and he's not a scary character, but you can see why he would be scary to this kid. It's like it's like things like that that I think make Parasite such a special movie. Parasite is a really just great movie, no doubt about it. I think um, Bong Joon-ho, after seeing like The Handmaiden and Snowpiercer, which he also made, and some of the actors crossed over with this movie, like it was awesome to see something that was more direct because there was elements of like the whole class disparity and how that works in those films. But here, I liked how it was confronted in a more oddly comedic and serious way. Like they, like Keith kind of said, they just really kind of folded it together so well and that's what i like about it too is that the first half of the movie is kind of this kooky comedy in a weird way like they they are like we're poor we need jobs how can we do this it's like well i got a job i'm totally kind of faking it like i I can't actually do the job but i could maybe get you a job i could recommend you and then they just recommend each other. And now their their whole family. And it feels like a heist. Yeah, in a weird way. So now it's the entire family working for one family. And then, of course, shit hits the fan. And then shit hits the fan harder. I also think that no other movie builds tension quite like the way a Parasite does. When you find out 
that the family is coming home after the Kim family has been kind of drinking and hanging out in their house. <laughs> I love and they're that. eight minutes away and yeah. they have to hide and clean up their mess. And make it dinner. And make dinner. And the stakes just get immediately raised and they're trying to avoid their movements and, and, and you don't know what's going to happen to them if they get spotted, but you know you don't want them to get spotted. Like it just uh, the way it builds tension is so incredible. 100%. 100% agree. Um, yeah, my, my only real negative with the movie is just that I think they are presenting the whole issue of class and the negative side of capitalism with this movie. But when it does get to the very end, and I'm talking like last scene type stuff, and the daughter dies, the father kills the other, the Park family father, and then the son is just like, don't worry, father, I'm going to come back and buy the house so I can save you. It does come a little bit too quick for me. I don't know how they could have done it differently to make me not feel that way. I just think it does come a little bit too quick. I will admit that is me reaching a little bit because I still think it's so incredibly engrossing and I totally understand the symbolism and metaphors they're going for there at the end. Um, but I guess it is just tough because I'm trying to compare it to 12 Years a Slave, which we kind of have to do based on this bracket. So, I mean, I kind of have to open that question up too. I mean, how would you guys compare this with 12 Years a Slave, a movie that we all really liked? Yeah, so th- this is, of course, the um, oppression wing of our bracket. So we do have Parasite versus 12 Years a Slave here. I don't know how we can compare these two movies because the subject matter in both of these re- is, re- is really so sad. Um, I-, I think we may just have to talk about like, the movie making as a whole um like you've kind of touched on that there are aspects of 12 years of slave that we maybe have like one or two extra scenes that we don't need whereas parasite i think i think every minute of parasite is important to build attention and and it's almost maybe too short like i I would have i could have done maybe with some more additional length but i I think everything that we have in parasite is so expertly shot uh well acted and, and just plays out so well on screen so i think just in terms of Looking at it as a movie as a whole, I'll, I'll vote for Parasite. All right. Well, Keith, what about you? Being your first time watching Parasite, I mean, do you feel that strongly about it as well? So I'll say that I think the story in 12 Years a Slave is way better. And obviously it's, you know, history. It's actually happened. It's true. And, and they portrayed it so well in the movie. But with Parasite, oh, man, like I said earlier, the positive for me is just how well they they made you okay with just rolling with it. Like when it changes from being like a comedy and then now it's kind of more of a comedy slash thriller and now and then and now it's just like horror at the end. But yeah, I think I'm I'm with you, Austin. I think every minute pretty much did count with this movie. Yeah. Um, and it was just structured really well. So I might have to throw a vote to Parasite too. And as far as rewatchability, definitely Parasite would have to take it. I can't watch 12 Years a Slave that often. No. So yeah, I'll, I'll throw a vote to Parasite. I'm right there with you. I think um, I'm with Keith that 12 Years a Slave is the better story, and I do think it just is, um, based on both real-life elements and the way they navigate that when it comes to passing through all these handlers and going from a free man to a slave to a free man. It's just crazy, and the fact that it happened and the way they present it in movie form is so crazy and incredible and important. Um with Parasite, I just – I don't know how they did it. Um, they're, like we talked about earlier, I think Elements of 12 Years, it just feels a little bit too long for me. And it's like I understand the brutality and, the, and they're totally selling it and I, I get it. 
but there's just scenes where it feels like I don't know if they were necessary the same time I get it because it's like we have to tell these types of stories so I get why they're necessary but with Parasite like Austin said everything felt necessary it's just my only issue with it is that third act um, because everything kind of comes out of nowhere whereas with 12 years my issue is the second act so that's what I'm trying to juggle with I think ultimately though I am going to vote for Parasite I just think it's the better movie is it the better story I don't think so but I think in terms of the total experience, removing enjoyability, I just think Parasite, despite that, is better. Okay, so Parasite will move on to the semifinals. And for our last matchup of round two, we now have Forrest Gump versus Amadeus. Okay, so Forrest Gump was released in 1994. It's directed by Robert Zemeckis. It stars Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, and Gary Sinise. And it follows the life and times of Forrest Gump a simple man who has a part in many historical events throughout the 60s and 70s. So, my friends, we have two very uh, pleasant watches here yes. in Forrest Gump and Amadeus. I, I think we really nailed it with this lighthearted wing. Forrest Gump is a movie I hadn't seen in a long time. I think it gets made fun of quite a bit for the voice and, and all that stuff. Got some iconic lines in it. It's very mainstream. That's a good way to put it. It's very mainstream. It's quoted all the time. So I kind of was going into it expecting to maybe like I remember it being better than it actually is. And I was pleasantly surprised that it's still just an incredible watch through and through. It's it's so fun. It's so funny. It's so moving and heartwarming. My only issue here is I feel the exact same way about Amadeus too. I was had so much fun on that viewing. I'm really torn here. Can, can you, one of you guys kind of help me out? Yeah. Before we talk about the quality of the movies, I think it's also worth noting, Austin, in terms of like the... Um... I don't know what you'd say, like the mummification or just like the hate, if you even want to go that far, that Forrest Gump gets. I think it's because it won Best Picture, obviously, in 94. But what did it beat? Four Weddings and a Funeral, Quiz Show, Pulp Fiction, and The Shawshank Redemption. So it's always kind of gotten hate because how the hell did it win when you think about those other movies? I'm not saying it didn't deserve it. I'm just saying... I mean, it was a tough race. You know what I mean? So those are all just knockout movies. They're so good. Um, And I think I'm with Austin in terms that the best thing about Forrest Gump is just that it's so kind of entertaining. It's it's super endearing, too. And Tom Hanks is just so damn good. He's great. I I, I do think in a weird way (laughs) at times, this is definitely something that I've only thought about as I've gotten older. There are elements of the historical fiction here where inserting him in everything is like, okay, <laughs> like there are elements where it's like, I don't know if that's the right call. I kind of love it though, because I, I do love how it, it then cuts back to his narration and yes, he has yes, yes. such a simple way of explaining stuff. He's like, I don't know why they shot that nice young man. Like, it's yeah. just, exactly. <laughs> like he doesn't exactly. realize what he was a part of. Like, so- I, I do agree it gets a little over the top, but at the same time, too, I, I do think it lends to so much comedy. Oh, yeah. 100%. It brings the comedy. And then I got to meet the president again. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, um, I, I do think, and again, this is one of those things where if they made this movie now, it would be, I think, strikingly similar, except they would just remove a couple minutes. And those minutes, those, some of those minutes would just be where they're kind of making fun of Forrest. And when I talk about that, I'm not talking about characters making fun of him. I'm talking about 
in a weird way, it's like, I don't even know how to word it. It's almost like the writer's making fun of Forrest. It's like, yeah, we, we understand. He, his IQ is lower. Things are tougher for him. We get that. But at times it does feel like painfully that you're trying to make fun of him. And I, and I hate those scenes. Um, but at the same time, they somehow balance it with, I, I cried again. I'm watching the fucking scene where he comes and meets Jenny again. And it's the first time in the movie where Forrest himself acknowledges that he understands who the audience perceives him to be. And when he finds out that he has a son, he's not happy. He, he, he says it's the most, he's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But his first thing is, the first thing he says is, is he smart or is he like me? And it's just, mm. he, he gets it. So while I hate the moments where the movie does try and kind of make you laugh at him, not with him, they do have those moments where it's like, okay, so he understands too. That's really interesting. And those are some fantastic moments. Yeah. And you're always rooting for him, though. Oh, yeah. I, at least I always oh, yeah. am. And the, I, I also do love kind of the, the redemption, too, in the Forrest and the Lieutenant Dan relationship. Yeah. So good. Forrest did the right thing by saving him, but Lieutenant Dan blames him for taking away his kind of battlefield glory. And then Forrest is still able to save him again and pulls him out of his drunkenness, gives him a job, uh, helps him find purpose again on the fishing boat. I just, yeah, Forrest is such a such a lovable character in this film too. Yeah, it's just such a good life movie. All these people have their their shit that's wrong with them. Like Lieutenant Dan doesn't have his legs anymore. Forrest you ain't got no legs, Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't got no legs. Um, I know that Forrest. <laughs> <laughs> I figure I'd try on my sea legs. I also, and that's in that scene too. I I had forgotten that it's so funny when he sees Lieutenant Dan and just jumps off the boat and oh, swims yeah. to him, yes. and the boat it's just cute. sails away. Yeah. <laughs> cute moment. Um, I, I cried twice on this movie. Whenever he's like, "You can come home with me to Greenbow, Alabama," and she's like, "Would you marry me for us?" And he's like, "Okay." It's like, oh god, they got me again. <laughs> um, like it's just, it's really sweet. Um, the problem is, Austin and Keith, the problem is, this movie is going up against Amadeus. And I just think it's not as sweet, but it's a better movie, has better performances, the set pieces are bigger, they're better, the premise itself is bigger beyond just being like, hey, what if... A normal guy was like in these crazy historical moments. I just really like this element of historical fiction and where they went and this rivalry and how it's one sided and how it comes to at the end. I, I just think Amadeus is a better movie. So despite my renewed love for Forrest Gump upon rewatching, I think I liked Amadeus better. I get what you're saying, Matthew, and I'm in full agreement with all your points you said on Amadeus, but Forrest Gump, it's just a classic, man. I love it, and you got you got to love them. You got to love the classics. So, yeah, I'm gonna vote for Forrest Gump. The story is always fun for me. All the characters are always fun. All the comedy moments work for me, and and then like and then like we've covered all the like the heartfelt moments and sad moments, like with him losing Bubba, always gets me every time. Yeah, yeah, it's just a good life movie. It's oh, and as far as rewatchability, I think Forrest Gump will definitely take it for me um, more so than. Amadeus. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go vote for Mr. Gump. 
So it looks like I have the swing vote. We've got one vote for uh, Amadeus and one vote for Forrest Gump. I uh, I really thought Forrest Gump was not going to hold up. And I went into Amadeus expecting to hate it. And I came out loving it. I came into this bracket thinking I will for sure be voting for Forrest Gump. Thinking about it now, though, Amadeus put me in a European mid-century opera. And I have never had that experience in a film before. And I, I think I got something out of Amadeus that I can only get from Amadeus. I, I think you can get things out of Forrest Gump that you can find in other films. So in terms of uniqueness, I will be voting for Amadeus. Now that Austin has voted and he cannot take it back, I will say, Haley Joel Osment as young Forrest, their scenes together, I cried like four times in this movie. I lied when I said I cried twice. <laughs> Seeing them at the end together, I cried again watching that fucking feather fly off and the music come in. <laughs> so good. <laughs> And let's get into the semifinals right now. We now have The Godfather Part 2 versus Braveheart. Oh my god. <laughs> I'll go ahead and start us off because this is easy for me. I will be voting for The Godfather Part 2. Uh, I, I think the story is more interesting than Braveheart. I think the performances are better. And for a movie made in the 70s, somehow the gunplay still holds up incredibly well. Yeah. Uh, I'll make this one quick for me too. I'm going to vote for Godfather Part 2. This always happens. This always happens in our semifinals. It's like it's always our quickest round for some reason. But <laughs> I'm and I'm in agreement as well. <laughs> Short and sweet. The Godfather Part Two will go on to the finals, and we now have for our last matchup of the semifinal round, we have Parasite versus Amadeus. Two films that I did not think would be here, but here they are. So both of my arguments for sending these two ons in the prior round. Both of them revolved around uniqueness, so I don't think I can use that argument again here. I think for me, I may just have to go off of enjoyability. And, uh, well, I do mean everything I said about Parasite building tension incredibly well and having you on the edge of your seat as soon as the story kind of flips into this, like, thriller horror movie. I think overall I, I did enjoy Amadeus more from start to finish. And I, I just think all of the composing scenes are so fun. I love the the rivalry between Mozart and Cilieri. And I just, I think the performances are so incredible. I cannot believe that this movie is made in the 80s and, and holds up as well as it does. Uh, I, I love how all of the opera scenes are filmed live and uh, it really puts you into the opera. Um, I think all of that is so cool and, and such a feat of filmmaking. So I'll throw my vote for Amadeus. I'll go ahead and second that. Not too much to add there. You pretty much hit all of my points, I would say, on uh, Amadeus. Just a incredible film, fun, awesome story. And then nothing against Parasite. It's great thriller slash comedy slash whatever it is you would call it. Kept me on the edge of my seat. But Amadeus, I think, I'll go back to what I said earlier, brings more to the table. Yep. I, in a weird way, I want to disagree, but I don't think I can. I think Parasite, I, I liked what Keith said earlier. It's just like, what's the better story? Because whenever we have all these movies that have won this pedigree, it's like that is kind of an important thing to bring up. And I would say that Amadeus does have the better story, but with Parasite, I think it just, when it comes to thematic resonance and like what it's exploring with class and society and the difference between roles and just um, like class, like I said, like different class levels, I think that is far more fascinating than anything in Amadeus. 
But like I said, it's weird because you guys already voted and I'm the one that was like, I weirdly kind of don't like the end of Parasite. And it's not that I hate it. It's just that I love the entire movie. And in that last few scenes, it's like, I understand this was about class, but this does feel like it comes out of nowhere in a weird way. And again, I I get it. I'm nitpicking. I'm sure there's an answer that I, as a straight white dude, don't get. I'm not joking. I'm I just I'm sure I don't get it. Um, with Amadeus, I just think it's a perfect movie and what it's going for. And Parasite, my only issue is I think 95% of it is amazing. It's just that last couple scenes that I'm like, ah, man, this doesn't totally work for me. So yeah, I think I'd go Amadeus as well. All right. Amadeus will go on to the finals. And for our final matchup of the day, we have The Godfather Part 2 versus Amadeus. Matt? Both of these films, I think tonight you have described them as perfect movies. So what is your opening statement for our matchup at the moment? I also submitted both of these. Yeah, I think I'll go off of my last point. I think what these movies are going for, they achieve them to levels that most films do not. If that makes sense, I just think they executed both of these perfectly. We talk about execution a lot in our episodes with other movies, with TV shows. We talk about premises and but like maybe the premise was good, but the ideas were good. But how did they actually nail them? These both of these movies, I mean, Milos Forman, Francis Ford Coppola, they just know how to nail execution. And that is something that is so commendable. Um, as for which is better or what I would vote for. That's a whole different conversation. So before we get to that, I want I, let me. How about you guys give me your initial thoughts? I mean, just I know we've talked about these movies a lot, but I mean, when it comes to what you would even consider when voting against either one of these, what are you thinking? It is kind of a tough one, but I think I know where my heart lies, and that will be with Godfather Part Two. Just the characters, I think, are better than Amadeus. The acting is better. The story is a little bit more interesting to me than Amadeus. And it's awesome because this movie is a sequel. And I don't think not a lot of sequels win Best Picture. Well, also, Keith, The Godfather won Best Picture. And then two years later, its sequel won Best Picture. So they both did. I don't know if The Godfather Part 2 wins Best Picture without The Godfather, though. I think the reason it wins is because it's such a good follow up to The Godfather. An equally great point. The fact that. The character of Vito Corleone was played by two incredible actors, Robert De Niro and uh, Marlon Brando, and he was, and he was played like the same. Because sometimes that can be tough if you have a you know an actor play a younger version of another character, and sometimes they don't always get the mannerisms down right. But I think that he they both had the same mannerisms and it felt like the same person. Yeah, I'm gonna throw vote to Godfather. All right, the first vote's out there. I mean, Austin. You haven't given your initial thoughts yet. I mean, what are you thinking? I, I agree with everything Keith says about The Godfather Part Two having just incredible performances, all kinds of great actors. The story in, in, God, in Godfather Part Two is just fantastic. The way it, it cuts back to young Vito Corleone, and it's so interesting uh, seeing like seeing him come to New York through Ellis Island. It's something I haven't seen in film before, I don't think. And so that was really cool. The way he works his way up like to kind of become who he is at the start of Godfather is, is really interesting. And then, like you've mentioned that, the way his flashbacks now pair into what Michael is now dealing with as the head of the Corleone family is, is a great and, and really compelling story. My biggest issue with The Godfather Part Two, 
I, I touched on it earlier, but I, I don't feel like the Corleone family is ever really in any danger. I, I know Vito gets shot in part one, and so there is that aspect of it. But at the same time, they handle that pretty swiftly. And the same time here, the, the opening with, with his family almost being gunned down, that gets handled pretty swiftly too. And from that point on, Michael's kind of running the show. His plan really never has any like hiccups, really. There's some minor ones along the way, but it never feels like he's actually going to get taken down. The Corleone family just feels so untouchable, and a story about this mobster family that, that isn't really threatened doesn't hold my interest for the entirety. And I think it was kind of easy to predict what was going to happen. Amadeus, what they set out to do, I think they nailed it so perfectly. Having Mozart's story being told by his biggest rival lends to just such an interesting dynamic. I love that Cilieri, for the whole movie, his what he's working against is, is not really Mozart. He thinks he's working against God. He thinks God has set out to make him a bad composer. So he's trying to beat God at God's own game. Yeah, and whenever Mozart is introduced, he's convinced that that is God challenging him. It's not just he has this person to beat. It's just, oh, God put this person here for me as a challenge to me because I'm so great. And and later on, when, when Cilieri still is not able to best Mozart, he thinks God has kind of lost favor on him. Like, I love that he isn't setting out to beat Mozart. He's really setting out to beat God. I, I think that is so cool. And I, I think they nail it through and through. And it shocked me. It was surprising. I had so much fun. So I'll vote for Amadeus. Despite my disdain for long run times, I do like epics. And these are two epics. The Godfather Part Two is this mobster crime epic that weaves together the past and the present in ways that are like, oh, that makes sense. But then it also doesn't make sense. And then when you think about it more, it's like, oh, yeah, Vito's rise to power and Michael's corruption of power is totally worth showing us when it comes to the contrast. With Amadeus, it's the same thing. It's a different kind of epic. It's this long movie that shows this rivalry. Again, I, I keep saying the one-sided rivalry. The aspect of Mozart genuinely thinking that Salieri is his friend is something that I love so dearly in this movie because Tom Holtz plays it so well. And I just think showing us all of these long segments of time, either if it's an opera, if it's a plan, if it's Salieri trying to like enact his plan, it doesn't work in the ways he thinks. I mean, it's so good. Um, I just think the thing that puts one of these movies over the edge is that... And also, these movies both have framing devices. I mean, we have the older Salieri at the start kind of confessing to the murder of Mozart. And it's like, what does that mean? And then cutting back and telling us the story. And it turns out not technically true, but also we get why he would confess to the murder. And then playing that out at the very end in the final scene, it's like, okay. And then, of course, The Godfather Part Two has, I mean, the most amazing framing device of the flashing back and forth. God, I just think... I can't give points of the acting over the other. I mean, the acting all over the place is dynamite. I think the reason I know what I'm going to say, I know my vote, and the reason I'm going to vote this way is because I disagree with one person. I get what they're saying. I get what Austin is saying when he says that the Corleone family is never in danger. I would say that the plan could have gone wrong. But where I would disagree is... We see Sonny Corleone die. We see Vito Corleone die. We see a cat, his wife, Diane Keaton, the amazing Diane Keaton, uh, miscarry and then say, actually, Michael, fuck you. Uh, it was an abortion. Um, and it's like, 
okay, so there is elements of danger. And then the Fredo betrayal. And it's one of those moments that you see Academy Awards fucking, like, uh, I don't know, montages of the great film moments whenever he grabs Fredo and kisses him and says, I know it was you, Fredo. And then seeing where the movie goes from there by the end is just too good. It's not so good, Keith. It's too good. It's it's great. Watching Fredo die as well on top of that is like, I get what Austin is saying. Before you make your vote, let me counter you, though. I'll, I'll concede that the Corleone family can be in danger. It doesn't seem like the heads of the family are ever in danger. Even in the first movie, when Vito gets gunned down, he still survives to the end of the film. And, and Michael, he almost gets gunned down, but he doesn't get hurt. It feels like he is untouchable. And for him to be our main character, like, I don't ever buy that he is in danger. The, the rest of the family may be, but the actual godfathers I don't think are ever in really in any danger. And I totally see what you're saying. One, I guess, counter, and I, I'm not, I don't even want to counter it, but the only counter I would say is, with Amadeus, the only reason I don't feel that way is because we see Salieri when he's older. And it's like, well, he'll be fine. And we know Mozart is dead because the characters say that in the first scene, and I know history, so he died pretty young. Um, but when it comes to The Godfather, it is this interesting thing where it's like, where is Michael going to go? And to your point of like, well, whenever he's about to get gunned down, he survives. And my thing is kind of like, they did have that weird element in the first movie of Michael was the outlier. He saw what happened at Pearl Harbor and he went to war. So he has this military history. So it's almost like watching Sonny die, watching Fredo die is like, I get it. But watching Michael fight for his life, it's a little bit like makes a bit more sense. He has that training. He has that element to him that's different from his entire family. So I don't disagree with what you're saying. I just think maybe the Godfather Part 2 in a weird way justifies these weird elements that you're bringing up. Maybe it doesn't always work, but... Which movie do you have more fun with? Amadeus. No doubt about that. I just think, today, I know with the brackets we've done before, fun is something that um, comes into play. Today is not that day as Aragorn says in the Oscar-winning film, <laughs> Return of the King, which I almost voted for. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> if I had made you guys... <laughs> I would have been made you so guys pissed. watch all of those movies just to do the third one, that would have been bad. We would not be friends again. That would have been the end of the podcast. Well, we are going to do this bracket again, and I will put that on there. Uh, maybe, who knows. But, um, I just think today, when it comes to the best Best Picture winner... I am going to go for what I think handles their elements a bit better. And when I say a bit, I truly mean it. I just think the Godfather Part 2 with what it's going for does it slightly better. And I do mean slightly. Amadeus is great, but I'm voting for the Godfather Part 2. Okay. Well, the Godfather Part 2 is now officially the best, best picture of all time. Do we, do we add that onto this or <laughs> yes. do we just say the best, best picture? <laughs> for now. For now. <laughs> okay. For now, the best, best picture of all time. And with that, everybody... That's going to wrap it up today. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss any of our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really do appreciate that so we can continue to grow this show. At The Arnie's is our social, and TheArnie's.media is the website. We will be back on Tuesday for the continuation of our retrospective and review series on the MCU Phase 1 with Captain America, the first Avenger. Where will Captain America 1 rank in our rankings of the MCU? I don't know. I know where I would say 
where will Keith and Austin say? It's going to be low, I think. That's my prediction. <laughs> As for other stuff, if you have your MCU fix, we have you covered because we will be talking about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier season slash maybe series finale next week. So stay tuned this coming Sunday where we talk about that. It's going to be a big episode. And other than that, we have tons of stuff planned. It's going to be fun. We have great content out now. Check it out. And that's all I got for you. All right. But yeah, check us out on Instagram at the Arnie's. Feel free to direct message us your thoughts on this episode and upcoming episodes. Please go back and catch up on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, I also have to catch up on it. I missed last ep- uh, last week's episode. Um, we'll see if my theory on it was right. Also, catch up on our MCU Phase 1 series. So go back and watch Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Thor, and the Incredible Hulk. All right, everybody. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah.